This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. Start a 30-day trial and your first Audible book is free. Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash Canada. From Canada land, this is Oppo. On this week's show, we talk about Quebec's terrible religious symbols ban and ask whether Ottawa ought to be doing more to fight this very racist, super bad, not okay law. Then we ask the very important question, has Doug Ford totally fucked things up for Andrew Shear? Yep. And good news, tankies. We're finally going to read from the NDP's latest manifesto to see whether Jagmeet Singh is a true believer. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. One book you should definitely check out is one of the best things I've read in years. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon, The Assange Murders, and The Birth of the FBI. It's not a great title, but you'll eventually realize why it's named what it is, and it's very, very good. It's written by David Grant, narrated by Willie Patton, Anne-Marie Lee, and Danny Campbell. And if you want a brief synopsis of what you can expect in this book, it is such a journey. It basically goes back more than 100 years to the Assange tribe throughout the northern United States and talks about a series of unsolved murders that targeted the community. It's based on years of research and startling new evidence. The book is honestly, it's a masterpiece of narrative nonfiction. It absolutely blew my mind. We assigned it for one of my book clubs. I was the only person who read it and I was very happy that I did and I rubbed it in everyone else's face. Killers of the Flower Moon is available on Audible for free if you start their 30-day trial. Learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash Canada. Be the best person in your book club. So after years and years of prattling on about it over the span of three governments, Quebec has finally passed into law a bill that would ban many public servants, including teachers, police officers, and others, from wearing any kind of religious symbols. And I'm coming from Alberta on this one, but I'm going to say it's pretty racist. It's obviously super duper racist and discriminating on all sorts of grounds. But the Legault government baked into the bill the notwithstanding clause, meaning the legislation has no recourse for challenge in the courts under most sections of the Charter on Rights and Freedoms. And that's not great. Now, this is actually the second time Quebec has passed basically this law. But last time it was set aside by the courts almost immediately. This time the path forward isn't quite so clear. The thing that frustrates me about this particular law is that it does seem that because it's Quebec, Quebec gets a pass that, you know, especially in Anglo Canada, we're really so terrified to anger the Francophones. We have to acknowledge that there's this separate, distinct, special society um, and that us, you know, people on the English side of things can't possibly understand how important secularism is to the people of Quebec. And so therefore, this law is somehow not racist, right? A hundred percent. I mean, there are going to be people that demand you never criticize this bill because Quebec is its own thing and we do not need the rest of Canada flat-footedly stumbling in to tell Quebec how to run things. And yet if a similar thing were passed in Alberta, like there would be no hesitation, no, and rightly no hesitation to be like, yep, you're just as racist redneck as we thought you were. 
What always mystifies me about this whole debate is that we all seem to have completely forgotten that Stephen Harper proposed something incredibly similar during the last election. In the last election, he basically opened the door to banning the niqab for all public servants, which, if anything, I find amazing because it just drops the pretense of pretending to care about secularism and just basically doubles down the Islamophobia directly. Okay, well, wait, 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 wait. It's not as bad as the Quebec secularism bill. Not that I necessarily want to defend Stephen Harper's record on this particular file, because this proposal for the niqab ban came on top of other types of bans, like um, he wanted to, or he fought in court, to have uh, the niqab barred for citizenship ceremonies, for example, and also, you know, the barbaric cultural practices hotline, lest we forget. So, like, I'm not here to defend Harper on this, but there's a substantive difference between someone saying, look, we don't think that you should have your face covered while you're delivering public services, and what Quebec is proposing, which is saying, like, look, all ostentatious symbols of religious garb, for example, turbans and, you know, large crosses and all that kind of thing, which would overwhelmingly target people of color living in Quebec would be banned. So, I mean, I I can kind of hypothetically, if I were playing devil's advocate, make an argument for delivering public services with your face uncovered. I can make that argument. Certainly the Quebec ban would impact way more people. Everything from, you know, the Hasidic Jewish community, potentially, you know, many other Jews would want to keep out at work. It would impact a lot of Christians. It would impact Sikhs. It would impact Muslims. Obviously, the ban Harper's proposing would impact virtually no people, if anyone at all. But the problem is, at least the Quebec government had the good sense to try and build this as not being purely Islamophobic and not targeting one religious minority specifically. Yeah, Harper but, but didn't we know give it a does. shit about that. We know it overwhelmingly does, because if you're sure. a Christian, you're not feeling you don't there's no religious compulsion to wear a cross to work. And as I said, like the other big difference between the what Quebec is proposing and what uh, Harper was proposing is that a cab ban fundamentally covers the face. What Quebec is proposing would also ban the hijab, which was just a covering of the yes. head, right? Like yes. that that would affect way, way, way more many people. And like there's no there's no practical argument for why a woman can't have her hair covered while she's delivering services. There is no logical argument as to why that would be a hindrance in any way, in the way that it might be a hindrance to have you know, your face covered while you were delivering a public service. 100%. I think both Quebec's law and the regulation Harper is proposing, both very racist and bad in their own particular ways. I don't think we need to stack them next to each other because they're both real fucking shitty. And honestly... Let's let's not debate semantics on this point. (laughs) Totally fair. What also made the Harper stuff particularly bad is because it came on top of all of these other proposals, which is very specifically targeted Muslims, right? Like that in and of itself, you might have been able to get to make a point or make an argument there. But on top of everything else, it got to be too much. That's right. And but what actually I think in the reverse way, people have gone a little too far in criticizing Quebec writ large. I think obviously the Quebec government knows what they're doing. They know the exact cynical ploy they're making. But what's been really interesting to watch is the local opposition to this bill. The city of Montreal has stood on its hind legs and basically told the Quebec government to go fuck itself. Yay, Montreal. The Teachers Federation and several school boards have said it's actually been quite cute the way they've kind of done administrative protest. They've kind of said, oh, you know, there's a lot of things to consider about how this law will be implemented. So we'll need probably a couple of years to figure out how to implement it. <laughs> so there's been this really kind of heartening um, civil disobedience in opposition to the bill. In Montreal, there's a city councilor by the name of Lionel Perez, who himself wears a kippah, who stood up to deliver this very impassioned um, speech decrying the law. And it's been actually really nice to see that. There's also been some really interesting juxtapositions that have exposed just how hypocritical this whole thing is. Most recently, Education Minister Jean-François Robert took a picture with Malala Yousafzai, of course, the Afghan education activist, you know, pushing to get 
young girls into school. She wears a hijab. Many people pointed out that in Quebec, she would not be qualified to be a fucking teacher. That is insane. And so I think the government is getting pummeled on this by all sides. I think generally the Quebec public is actually getting very disenchanted with this entire debate. And you've even seen uh, one party in particular, or actually two parties, basically go from supporting some sort of religious symbols ban, Quebec Solidaire and the Liberal Party, to 100% flipping to the other side and basically saying, this has gone too far, this is racist, this is damaging to our society, drop this shit. I think there's actually momentum against this bill that I think is actually really heartening. And you're already seeing a litany of legal challenges Obviously, they can't use the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but there's all sorts of administrative and other statutory provisions they can use, including Quebec's own Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is kind of separate but weaker than the federal charter. So I think there's a lot of reasons to be cynical and sad here, but there's also a lot of good things happening. I don't know that this bill is going to survive a lot longer. I hope you're right. Um, the only thing I could say is like civil disobedience obviously makes a difference and people standing up and saying, yeah, that sounds racist to me and kind of shaming the leaders of Quebec to, to reconsider this position is good. Wouldn't it be more effective if we had, you know, our super woke, super anti-racist prime yeah. minister be a lot more aggressive on this front? Uh, Yeah. Not necessarily even legally, but just be like, like out there regularly and often going on and saying, look, I strongly oppose this racist bill. Like this is, like, I don't know, if you're going to build a brand on being you know, feminist, anti-racist, woke, whatever, then it seems like here's like a really, really good local target for you to take on. Yeah, I mean... The shame the liberals don't need Quebec so badly, right? (laughs) You know, it's so bizarre to me that he's not doing more. I mean, you know, I think people like to play this game of, oh, well, he's trying to appease the province of Quebec. Like, let's remember that on the last election, there was also a premier, a liberal premier in Quebec pushing for a religious symbols ban. Justin Trudeau actually campaigned hard against it and did very well in Quebec and almost swept the province. I don't know where this idea, I maybe it is possible inside the PMO or inside the Liberal Party, they're all sitting there strategizing, saying we can't go at Quebec too hard or else we'll piss off the racists and lose seats. But history has proven that that doesn't really happen. Quebec seems to actually appreciate a leader being clear and forceful on this, even if they don't agree with him. Well, and also I would, I would point the same criticism over to the conservative side, because I, I hear nothing from the conservative side on well, this side as well. I think they support well. it. And like, to me, honestly, like there's, there's, it. it's not a hard argument to make as a conservative to be like, the state shouldn't really be dictating what you wear on your goddamn head. Like, it's not a hard argument to make if you're coming from the conservative side on this stuff. Oh, I'm old enough to remember a conservative party that cared about religious freedom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like, you know, as I said, framing it as a, just a straightforward religious freedom issue should be an eminently base-pleasing position. Yeah. Justin Trudeau has so many tools in his chest here. I mean, he could come out and just campaign hard against it. He spoke in front of uh, the Quebec Teachers Federation recently and used the event to criticize Doug Ford instead of, you know, Francois Legault, the guy enacting a crazy racist piece of legislation that would impact <laughs> against their members. Own members. Exactly. So that's obscene. <laughs> he has to do more. I, I do think there's a, there's a chance that he's sitting in his office and basically, you know, concluding that these court challenges will succeed without his help, that he doesn't have to do anything and that him getting involved would only give ammunition to the nationalists and sovereigntists who want to campaign against the big bad boogeyman in Ottawa. So maybe it is a strategic decision aimed at actually helping overturn the ban. I don't think that really carries a lot of water. I can see the rationale, but I I think it's bullshit. The federal government has the option of intervening on behalf of those challenging these laws. It has the option of helping cover some of those legal expenses. It has the option of raising disallowance, of saying the federal government's going to come in and kill 
this law on the provincial level. That is the atomic weapon of Canadian federalism, but it's an option, and he hasn't done any of that. I don't even think he needs to necessarily go there. You know, as I said, I, I just think that there's an option for him to just be more vocal on this. I think so. Period. I, and I think that, that would probably be the most effective thing he could do. You know who I want to hear from desperately? Oh, who? Jugmeet Singh. I mean, no, <laughs> yeah. buddy, buddy couldn't <laughs> oh be a cop God, in Quebec. Right? That's an NDP leader who actually wears a turban <laughs> who we haven't heard from in ages. Yes, yes. And he's come out against, he's come out against the law. Like, I'm not going to discount that, but he didn't do so forcefully. He did not slam his fist on the table. He didn't deliver that personal message of this is something that would literally impact me. And that's really frustrating. Especially because his predecessor, Thomas Mulcair, was also sort of hand-wringing about the niqab ban when it first came out. And that, I think, is one of the reasons he tanked in Quebec. He said one thing in English, something else in French, and ultimately looked weak and sort of middling on it. And Quebecers abandoned his party in droves. But, but wait, but if there's a federal leader who has more moral authority on yeah. this issue, could it possibly be saying, but no, no, we're going to talk about bicycling strategies, and my goodness, will we ever be getting to that next? Yeah, step the fuck up, Jagmeet Singh. <laughs> Jen, as long as we're talking about where the fuck the NDP is... Again? Again, I think I may have found them. And and this is an olive branch to all of the leftists and tankies who get quite upset whenever we talk about the NDP. Wait, I don't think the leftists and tankies are really hate listening to us anymore, man. I think we were like a, a passing pastime. <laughs> I think we got old for them. Maybe. Well, even if not for their benefit, today we're going to try to right that wrong a little bit. I have with me here a digital copy that I'm <laughs> holding... <laughs> The NDP Electoral Manifesto. Now, this is not a full is it actually, platform. Are they actually calling it a manifesto? No, just but I am. Okay, all right, all right, right. <laughs> It's not a full platform. It's not costed. It's a bunch of priorities. So it's a lot of kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff. There's some specific policies there, but this is this seems to be the, the contours of their next election campaign. And I just want all of the leftists and tankies, if you're listening out there, to know just because we're laughing at your policies doesn't mean we're necessarily laughing at the NDP. We might also be laughing at the NDP because this manifesto is not incredible. But this is our good faith effort to read through some actual NDP policies and we'll tell you what we think of them. Wait, wait, is it is it good faith? Because if it's not good faith, we should just know that. (laughs) Nothing we do on the show is good faith, Jen. I'm not sure we'd start now. (laughs) All right. Let's start with drugs. So Let's obviously a big part of the, the NDP platform for a couple of years now has been this national pharmacare program. And okay. in this list of priorities, they're pledging $10 billion. And I'll, and I'll read you what, you what they say about it. They say, it means you'll need your health card, not a credit card, at the pharmacy till. And it puts an end to costly copayments, deductibles, and premiums that cost families hundreds and even thousands a year. What do you think of that, Jen? Okay, so my first reaction to this is I'm not immediately opposed to a national pharmacare program. Isn't that what the liberals propose? $10 billion seems like a shit ton of money. And aren't most Canadians more or less covered through various forms of private and public health insurance already, such as OHIP, Alberta Blue Cross, et cetera, et cetera? Yes. Okay. <laughs> no. Here's my thing. I get why left-leaning and progressive parties keep on wanting to push the bar on, on healthcare and, and including access and, and, and doing all this sort of stuff. But it sort of seems like most of the low-hanging fruit has been gathered, and I would infinitely prefer a government of any stripe 
to try and reform some of the real issues we have, such as emergency care, wait times, long-term care. Those issues for me are way bigger priorities than trying to replicate a pharmacare coverage program that you know largely isn't a huge problem for most Canadians, right? I sort of agree. And I think this is actually the problem with how they're phrasing it, right? Because the, the issue is not as much about getting uninsured people onto an insurance plan because those people exist, but they're not a massive number. I mean, what the Liberals are trying to do is basically expand uh, private insurance and some public programs to capture all of those people to get everybody on some sort of plan. So really, you know, it's kind of two different strategies to get to universal coverage and the Liberals strategy seems to work faster and, and be cheaper. Yeah, and I, I would much rather have a federal government just sort of uh, getting all those people who have fallen through the cracks and putting them onto some kind of plan than to try and totally overhaul pharmacare. That just sort of seems like yeah. a much more practical fix. If I want the government's focusing on anything in addition to what I just said, it would be on things like dental care, right? Like a national dental care program. They're also promising uh, a universal dental care program. Um, okay. But what I think the benefit of something like this is the economies of scale that goes along with having, you know, one bigger insurance program or, or several kind of large ones that are government minister that, that has a federal government fighting for price negotiations on certain uh, big pharmaceutical uh, Because brands. governments are notoriously great at that. Well, I mean, that's part of the reason why our healthcare system works relatively as well as it does is because we do have, you know, a single desk purchaser. We have a single desk negotiator uh, that deals with a lot of these things. And we get the economies of scale from that. Unfortunately, we lose out on a lot of that because we have, you know, different provincial systems. But I think there is benefit to that. But that's not how the NDP is pitching it. And they're not even really giving details on how they create this universal program. It does kind of sound like they're just going to basically cover everyone's upfront costs for private insurers, which doesn't get you that benefit. So, ugh. The one big thing I fucking noticed about uh, the NDP drug slash health program here is that there's no call to decriminalize drugs. This was part of Jugmeet Singh's entire pitch for becoming leader of the really? NDP. It's not in there. Which that is very sort of seems like it's an obvious thing for the for the NDP to be going for here, man. Like decrim, like that. I mean, even the, even the liberals are yeah. pondering that. I'm not. I'm not impressed. Not impressed. Okay. Next. Hit me. Okay. One big thing, obviously, that is concerning uh, everybody is housing affordability and. There's stuff in here for it. It's it's actually not bad. Of all the things in this platform or quasi-platform. Don't cry me. Tell me what the plan is, dude. Plan is for 500,000 good, affordable units over the next decade, with half of that being delivered in five years, and a whole new fund for fast startups. So basically, if you can get shovels in the ground nearly immediately, there'll be specific funds set aside for that. Um, on top of that, much smaller, but they're going to waive the federal GSD HST on the construction of new affordable housing units. Altogether, that's okay, I don't, pretty good. I don't have a problem waiving the GST. Are we talking about uh, federal housing units that the, that the federal government is going to fund or somehow incentivize? Or are we talking about federal housing units that the, that the federal government is going to run like landlords? No, it definitely sounds like incentivizing private developers to get into that business, which again... So, so we're going to enrich private developers to spend more money on cheaper housing. That's the plan. Yeah. Is anybody else, anybody else not seeing how that could go wrong? <laughs> I mean, it's what the, it, to, to some degree, it's what the CMHC and the federal government already does. Like, you know, they do offer partnership funds and, and investment capital for private developers who wanted to get into the business of, of building housing units, especially affordable and social housing units. Yeah, so we I mean, we also see a lot of that stuff done at, at the municipal level. I mean, agreed. Why should the federal government be doing this as opposed to the municipal governments? Exactly. The federal government's comparative advantage here is that it owns the CMHC. It owns a company that builds affordable housing and, and runs them. Less and less these days, but it should be doing that. Again, if, if you want to talk about a federal housing, if you want to talk about housing affordability, then the CMHC is a really good place to start. Why is yes. the federal government basically subsidizing banks to give people cheap mortgages, which runs up the cost of housing? 
Oh, and in this plot, in this list of principles, I'll stop calling it a platform. There's a, a proposal to reintroduce the 30-year CMHC mortgages. To oh, get that's log- that's they- good. Yeah, brilliant idea. Let's let's have more people who can't afford mortgages and can't afford to put proper down payments on their mortgages taking out longer-term mortgages so that they can build their equity even more slowly. That's a yep. super plan. I, great idea. Good job, MVP. Yeah. Again, this is a theme for this whole document. So many missed opportunities here to do something kind of big, bold, and exciting that will actually put the NDP back on the map. Instead, it's just slightly altered liberal policies. Okay, next. Go. Okay, so here's one that could be really exciting. Post-secondary education. You know, the, the party is now just a bunch of 24-year-old uh, Marxists. So yeah, maybe who absolutely this- should be like promising free tuition, right? I want to gauge your, your excitement as All I read right. through this sentence and, and just see how you feel about it. All right. Our vision is for every Canadian to have access to quality post-secondary education, regardless of their income. Okay. Over the long term, this means working with the provinces and territories to cap and reduce tuition fees and building towards making post-secondary education part of our education system. So the kids can what? go to kindergarten to a career without the barrier of cost. If you want to have um, free tuition, just fucking say it. Like, <laughs> I don't understand what this is. Like, it is the most weaselly call for maybe free education I've ever seen. It, 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 can I also say, like, I'm not even sure that, like, getting more people into post-secondary education is a universal unmitigated good. Like, I'm not even so convinced that that is the best policy, particularly if you have more and more people getting streamed into larger liberal arts studies, you know, in order to supply, you know, the market for jobs that don't exist. Like, if we're talking, if we're adding, like, trades to that post-education, then I can sort of see an argument I think it would be, that would would include colleges. I mean, actually, a really sensible policy here would be immediate or short-term, medium-term free college tuition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would, I, I, that would be a much more radical term, and I think that that would be, or free trades and free college. The NDP, I would, like, I would much rather see a, a policy where they were like, look, we're going to make tuition free for trades. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, that makes way more sense to me. Exactly. Um, all to say is that there's a huge, again, another huge opportunity here for the NDP to even revert back to its past policy and do something that sounds kind of exciting. Not there. Not there. No, so it's really boring. Okay. They want to put a price cap on cell phone plans. I could get behind that. Well, so their plan is a price cap in general, a mandated cheap plan for cheap people, which is fine. Unlimited data plans at affordable rates. And they're going to ban caps on uh, data usage for internet. Or you could just in- like introduce actual competition to the market. But I mean, that's also an option. Yeah, I mean, this is going to lead to very, very subpar and shitty uh, cell phone service. But uh, I kind of like this. It's, it's, it's a fun kind of consumer-focused, traditional, annoying social democratic plan. I kind of like it. It's up there. It's what I would expect from the NDP. Okay. Give, me so- give me something that's going to make me laugh. Come on. Okay. Give me a good one. Okay, actually, you know, here's a good one then. New Democrats support fair trade that broadens opportunity in all areas of the country while protecting our industries and upholding labor standards, environmental So you don't support fair trade. And human rights. That's why we'll <laughs> always defend Canadian workers in trade negotiations, protect supply management, and stand up against unfair tariffs. Well, okay. Protecting Canadian workers in trade and negotiations is standard. Everybody should be doing that. Uh, fighting against unfair tariffs. Fair enough. Hey, Canada's been subject to those lately. Supply management? How do you add supply management in your statement about how you support fair trade? Well, how do, you pledge to pro- how do you pledge to protect supply management while also pledging to stand up to unfair tariffs? That is what supply management is. That's, it's just yeah, a that's, program yeah, that's unfair correct. Tariffs. That's an unfair tariff 
that is levied against the Canadian consumer, disproportionately levied against poor Canadian consumers. Or maybe that's a fair tariff. Maybe that's their point. It's a fair Supply tariff. Okay, fair all right, tariff. cool. That's fine. Anyway, next. Jen, there is one section of this document that I actually think is uh, Cracker Jack, and you heard me demanding the NDP look into it forever ago, so I guess they listened to me. They definitely listened to you. <laughs> Under the NDP's priorities for the next election, they're going to scale back corporate tax cuts back to 2010 levels, which is about three point increase in the corporate tax rate. They're going to boost the top income tax rate and they're going to add a 1% wealth tax to those with wealth over $20 million. I love it. I love it. It's exactly the eat the rich sort of program I've been looking for. I mean, again, from the NDP, that is what I would expect. However, I've got some real questions about the competitive advantage that that would leave us with uh, the U.S. So that's not everything in this document. Obviously, it's like 75 pages. There's a lot of repetition in there. There's some other stuff that I, I went over. There's going to be another basic income pilot. There's a couple of things. But overall, this document does not get me excited. I, I really do want Jugmeet Singh to come out and try to be something that's going to light my hair on fire. And eh, it's just not been there. It's just, This is not it. Hey, Justin. Yo. I have to admit something. What is it? I'm really jealous of the reporters at Queen's Park. That's fair. Here, here. I want to read out a list, in no particular order, of everything that has happened to the Ford government over the past few weeks. It will be the verbal equivalent of watching a building demolition in slow motion. You won't be able to peel your ears away. And for that, we need music. David, cue the clown music sounds. There we go. So... After a, a rocky first year, Doug Ford decided to hit the reset button with a cabinet shuffle. High-profile ministers like Vic Fidelli, Carolyn Mulroney, and Lisa McLeod were essentially demoted. Did it work? Nope. Shortly thereafter, Doug Ford's chief of staff, Dean French, resigned after he was accused of making patronage appointments. Apparently, the guy really, really liked the crew around his son's lacrosse team because the government is now largely staffed by members and volunteers at the Ontario Lacrosse Association. <laughs> Among the appointments that have since been revoked, resigned, or restructured, we have Andrew Subuck the chair of the Justices of the Peace Appointments and, and Advisory Committee, Taylor Shields, who was appointed to drum up some business in London, Taylor Albrecht, a 26-year-old child who played lacrosse on French's son's team, and who was to earn a six-figure salary to find business for Ontario and New York, Catherine Paolo, a niece of French's wife, and a strategic transformation advisor who once bought life insurance from Dean French. About a week after that, the Globe and Mail landed a scoop, a leaked report on the government's handling of the autism file. According to a report written by a member of the PC caucus, the government deliberately lied about the costs and the backlog for treatment. Additionally, messaging on the file has been, and I quote, less than ideal. The newly demoted Ontario Tourism, Culture and Sport Minister Lisa McLeod called Ottawa Senators owner Eugene Melnick, quote unquote, a piece of shit and a fucking loser at a Rolling Stones concert. Meanwhile, Ford was booed before a massive audience who was celebrating the Raptors' win of the NBA Finals. More recently, Ford and Patty Hadju got into a fight about who was to blame for the 550 layoffs at the perpetual government subsidy plant Bombardier. Ford's approval rating is now predicted to hover at around 29%, beating out only Nova Scotian Premier Stephen McNeil and holy hell, what must be going on in Nova Scotia? Oh, let me jump in just to say that no matter how unpopular Stephen McNeil is, he will win re-election. His popularity could be at 0% and he'll be re-elected, so. Fair enough. And of course, as anyone who has any sense could have predicted, Ford has made a whole shit ton of cuts to health, education, and environment, with many more cuts not yet announced but probably already written into the budget. Meanwhile, there appear to be good odds that Ontario teachers are putting off a strike until the federal election so they can really sink the knife into the Conservatives once the writ drops. 
So all that is to say that Andrew Scheer is fucked. I mean, Doug Ford is poisoning the well in Ontario for the Conservatives to such a crazy degree. Andrew Scheer must be so depressed right now. Yep. That's it for Oppo. We'll be back in two weeks. Tell your friends about us and find us on iTunes to give us a rating to counteract all the tankies. Or get in touch at oppo at canadalensshow.com. Or find us on Twitter and Facebook at OppoCast to let us know what you think. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And the theme music was by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week. And that word is... Yup. 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 They're calling us a corrupt petrostate. They're calling us the dirty old man of the climate world. I'm Marshy Mann, host of Commons. This season of Commons is called Crude, and we're bringing you stories about oil country. The good, the bad, the ugly, and especially the weird. And you would drop that into the well and you would set it off. So they're shooting missiles at the earth. Yes. I grew up in a place where I couldn't even breathe, and that's not my fault. He viewed the battle against the oil and gas industry as a battle of good versus evil. Subscribe to Comments from Canada Land wherever you get your podcasts. 